and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Cindy Yu. A cross-party Remain alliance successfully tied Boris Johnson's hands in Parliament last week. But with the general election looming, will this unlikely coalition last? We also find out about study drugs. What are the little blue pills that American students are turning to? And last, is Boris Johnson anything like his classical heroes? Last week, a rather effective cross-party alliance passed the Ben Bill to prevent a no-deal Brexit. These days, with Parliament prorogued, Katie Balls reports that they are still plotting regularly. Their goal is to ensure that Brexit is extended and then to call a general election on their own terms. But with radically different domestic agendas and constituencies in which they'll be combating each other, can this unlikely coalition last? Katie joins me now to war game for the Remainers, together with Polly McKenzie, Chief Executive of Demos and former advisor to Nick Clegg. Katie, in your cover piece this week, you describe a remote control government made up of cross-party Remainers. Tell us about this alliance. So you have a situation where this cross-party rebel alliance, that you could call them, of MPs who don't agree on that much, including Brexit, but they do agree they don't want a no-deal Brexit, teaming together to try and legislate against a no-deal Brexit. In the process, we've seen over 20 Conservative MPs lose the whip, and we've seen the opposition parties really start to work out how to work together on certain issues. And you have a situation where they now regularly meet in Jeremy Corbyn's office, and Mm. this isn't so much the independent Tories but the five opposition parties so you have a representative from each of them and they discuss how they plan to work together primarily to stop no deal but we have seen in recent weeks other ways they can work together to hurt the Tory government so it it ties in but for example we had Dominic Greaves humble address voted for by Mm. MPs from all of these parties you know it was organized in, in a way and that meant that number 10 and I being asked to hand over whatsapp messages something they're refusing to do but you do sense that there is this palpable relief in government when parliament was eventually suspended because Boris Johnson has lost control and you can argue every day the commons is sitting and this group have control and take control of the order paper because they have the majority not Boris Johnson they have John Burke who's happy to play along with it they're almost in a way torturing Boris Johnson it was put to me by, by, by one figure now some say this is fine because Downing Street have a cunning plan and in an election they'll play this as a people versus parliament narrative but at least in the short term Mm. the power is with this group Jeremy Corbyn speaking to Joe Swinson speaking to Ian Blackford I think they all have various differences in how they would fight an early election but they can all agree they want to damage the Tory government and they also want to make it strategically difficult for Boris Johnson in an election so as to avoid a no deal Brexit or depending on which party you're talking about any Brexit. So Polly, the Remain Alliance hasn't faced many challenges to their unity at the moment, but if Boris Johnson does resign, they will have to unite around a candidate who they would like to be a caretaker PM. Could they agree on one candidate? I think it's really difficult. Uh, We saw over the summer a sort of tussle about whether Jeremy Corbyn, as an aspiring permanent prime minister, could take a role as as a caretaker prime minister. And Joe Swinson and kind of that growing number of independent conservatives or ex-conservatives 
made it clear that they just couldn't support mm. Jeremy Corbyn in that position. And there isn't an obvious alternative candidate. Some people have suggested Joe Swinson. I don't know if anybody's a fan of the uh, the Danish political drama Borgen, but in that, it's a sort of the centre party becomes the prime minister, basically because nobody else can agree. Uh, and of course, that comes with its challenges. Or do you take a kind of a Tory grandee? I mean, I, I still think the idea of a caretaker prime minister is pretty much kind of at the outside of possibility. It's such a constitutional wrench and such a an amount of trust to give to somebody to put them in office. Because, mm. of course, actually, once you're the Prime Minister, there's a huge amount of executive power that you can wield. Is, that, that's, an argument, that's what, is that, that an argument for a caretaker PM from a smaller party so that they can't then force their way and win no-confidence votes with, let's say, Labour getting in? Well, you can imagine a kind of horrific scenario <laughs> where, you know, Joe jo Swinson is the, the Prime Minister for three days and then she does something and she gets no confidence and then Plyde puts somebody up and then it's like, you know... Caroline Lucas next. Oh, God forbid. <laughs> and, and we just have, you know, Prime Minister for a day as if it's that ITV series. Anyway, let's hope that we don't descend to that chaos. I think the key question is, actually, can Boris find a way to wield his executive power, like announcing police officers and doing stuff for the NHS in a way that starts to build uh, momentum for his side that makes the opposition kind of worry about mm. allowing him to continue as prime minister and wanting to bring him down you know i think the earliest now we can have an election is the very end of november assuming this parliament wants to choose its to choose the new speaker but would would they these opposition parties want to see boris who's looking increasingly kind of stressed and anxious and persecuted just sort of hang himself with his own rope for months and months and months looking tired and exhausted or can he show that with executive power, who cares about Parliament? He can mm. actually get things done. Sure. Who knows? That, that You know, he can spend a lot of money. Mm. And Casey, taking a look at that upcoming general election, I mean, the parties this week have already started campaigning. Labour's come out with some pretty radical domestic agenda policies. I mean, is that a problem for the Remain Alliance as well? And how big of a problem will it be? Before we just get on to electoral strategies, uh, there's lots of debate about who might lead it. But I know there are figures in Labour who think that were Boris Johnson to resign and he would you have to suggest someone to take his place. If you suggested Jeremy Corbyn should go and request an extension, they don't think you would have to have a vote in the House of Commons. So they think that'd be a way around it because he has recommended it. So it's a matter for the Queen, not for the Commons. It's slightly different than what would happen in a no-confidence vote. So there are a few different setups to how you get to this general election. And there's lots of grey areas where people have different readings of what the Constitution is. But once you get to the general election, I mean, there's lots of talk of electoral pact. So this group have agreed already that they want to stop Boris Johnson from pursuing no deal. They want to make Boris Johnson look weak in the chamber. Can they agree to give each other an electoral advantage by perhaps standing down in some seats or in other seats, not campaigning so hard? So, for example, I understand Labour plan to field a candidate in every seat. They are one of the main parties, so they think that is important. But you could see something similar to what happened in 2017 in Brighton Pavilion, where that is Caroline Lucas's seat, the only Green MP. And there is this sense that Caroline Lucas, they didn't pour funds into it in the way that they did those neighbouring seats, mm. which were tight seats, and Caroline Lucas kept the seat. Now, you could see them repeating that and actually putting it in some Lib Dem Tory marginals, perhaps not campaigning particularly aggressively. And in response, perhaps Joe Swinson would either do the same or just not stand a candidate in areas in the Midlands, in the North, where 
the Tories really think they need to win seats, so Labour, Lib Dem marginals. But I think there is a limit to how far this can go because the SNP are involved in all these talks right now and the SNP are playing a role in these votes, but ultimately the SNP are not going to take part in a non-aggression pact. Uh, they want to win every seat mm. in Scotland. I think they would be very happy if Jo Swinson lost her seat. She took it from the SNP at the last election. So there are discussions ongoing, but I think, again, how far they can all go is limited and it might actually be the case that when you see how people speak to the SNP that conversation gets picked up after the election Mm. because there is a sense and clearly people close to Jeremy Corbyn will try and talk up the sense that Labour could get a majority but I think amongst most of the parties in the Remain alliance right now or the rebel alliance depending on what you say their aims are I think that they believe that Labour at most will be a minority government Mm. and they might all have to work together again soon and they'll be back around that table working out what they can do in terms of actually governing. Polly, as a former Lib Dem advisor, would you advise Joe Swinson to do something like that, to have an electoral pact or not pour as much effort into it? I think it's really fascinating. Katie's, Katie's right. The Labour Party has this sort of sense of entitlement that means it ought to be everywhere and everybody else ought to stand down in favour of the Labour Party. And it's interesting to see Labour reactions to this Liberal Democrat shift in position Mm. that actually if we were elected with a majority, we would take that as a mandate to just revoke Article 15, give up on this whole damned project. And of course, the Labour Party are angry because that makes life harder for them they think it's a move by the Liberal Democrats to suck Labour Remain votes. Labour loves claiming that votes belong to them. To suck those Labour-entitled Remain votes over to the Lib Dems, which is, of course, precisely what it is, but they feel that that's very wrong of the Lib Dems because what they ought to do is just back the Labour Party, which is an extraordinary thing to do, given that the Labour Party has done almost nothing for years to actually stop Brexit, slow down Brexit, prevent no deal, you know. It's a reminder of quite what an extraordinary thing Boris Johnson managed to achieve by proroguing Parliament, which was to get these groups, these parties who basically hate each other, to unite around a strategy. You know, fundamentally, the Liberal Democrats do not want Jeremy Corbyn to be the Prime Minister. That isn't to say that they wouldn't in the end go into a coalition or a, a, mm. a, a kind of confidence supply agreement. It, Although Joe Swenson has ruled that out well, in the in, past. In, indeed, but just in, in the future, who knows what will happen after a general election with the Labour Party, with the Conservatives, with the SNP. You know, it's, it's all unpredictable. But I think it's funny to see how many Labour people just sort of expect the Liberal Democrats or the SNP or Plaid Cymru or the Greens to to act like they're the sort of junior cousin of the Labour Party when they're not. They're independent parties with their own ambitions. And I th- I think it will be really hard for those parties to stand aside for the sake of the Labour Party, which has not shown itself to be a Remain party, just because, oh, the Labour Party's bigger. And I th- in the end, I think that a, a war will return between these, uh, these current pals. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think this... If you want to call it peace, because it's peace on a very limited uh, mutual interest, I don't think it can last particularly long. And I think in a general election, it's all going to come out. You've already Mm. seen, for example, the Lib Dems at the conference this weekend, Mm. seeing if they're going to move to a revoke position rather than a Labour position. If you move to revoke, you're clearly going to criticise Labour in an electoral campaign for not going far enough and not being trustworthy on Brexit. The very fact that we're all talking is partly because there's a blame game going on. And at the beginning of the summer, you had a situation 
situation where everyone was blaming Labour, saying they were the handmaiden of no deal or Brexit. And I think Jeremy Corbyn strategically managed to get on the front foot of that by turning the table slightly on Joe Swinson mm. and saying, well, I could lead this caretaker government. And she's saying other people could. And they, they got to the point where they managed to agree a plan that most people could get behind. I think what is helping Lib Dem and Labour relations slightly, even though they are deadly rivals and will attack each other and you you very rarely don't see a Corbynista bringing up Joe Swinson's record and coalition. But what's helping is I think that at least to each other they have this sense that they can both hurt the Tories more mm-hmm. than each other. So speaking to various Lib Dem figures they point out the fact that if you look at the top target seats for the Lib Dems in a general election I think there are seven if you depending on what you look at in the top 50 which are Labour seats. Mm. They're actually really very large Labour majorities for lots of those target seats. So I think Sheffield Hallam, Nick Clegg's former seat is one where you think there will be a real Lib Dem Labour battle. Jared Amara, the current independent. I mean I don't think he's done a great of advertising what a, a Labour MP can do there no. um, and there are a handful more but then you don't have well, to Well I think one key seat actually is Jeremy Corbyn's seat obviously he's been the MP there since like you know 1066 or something but the Liberal Democrats the evidence suggests outpolled the Labour Party in the European elections and uh, you know we know the Conservatives will attack the Lib Dems in the same way of uh, the 2015 and 2017 elections of, you know, you basically if you vote Lib Dem, you're letting the Tories in. Mm. Sorry, you're letting the Labour Party in, forgive me. Uh, you're letting Jeremy Corbyn in. And actually, if the Liberal Democrats were to target Jeremy Corbyn's seat very ostentatiously, obviously that would irritate the Labour Party a lot, but it would help to demonstrate that they are in fact not in favour of Jeremy Corbyn tolerant of anti-Semitism in his party, Marxist, planning to do all sorts of ghastly things to our economy, which the Liberal Democrats do not support, that they're not in favour of him and would help to protect them from that kind of fundamental attack which the Tories will use ruthlessly against them. Polly, while I have you here, I just wanted to ask you about Liberal Democrats' internal disagreements. I mean, they haven't really appeared yet, but with MPs like Philip Lee and Sarah mm. Wollaston joining, I mean, is the Liberal Democrat Party really thinking about what its domestic agenda will look like with the influx of new MPs? I think, uh, you know, there are growing pains for political parties that are trying to increase their appeal, right? And the Liberal Democrats have been able to be quite a narrow church, I guess, because as a smaller party, they have been able to have MPs who mostly agree on a lot of things. The the kind of quid pro quo of being bigger is that you have to find a way to tolerate a wider range of opinions. But actually, even if you take, you know, Philip Lee on one side and Luciana Berger on the other side, you know, they've come from different parties, but the variance in their opinions is really still quite a lot smaller than the variance in opinion you can see from, you know, within the Conservative Party or within the Labour Party. It it will be challenging for the Liberal Democrats to accommodate those conversations, Mm. but actually because they have a lot of democratic process, I I think they'll find a way to, to do it. But, you know, of course, some people will be rude about some other people in the newspapers because that's what politicians do. Katie, finally, your piece ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. You say that the unknown in all of this is the non-voters. Tell us about them. So this is talking about, I mean, every party, as we discussed, has a different pitch. And something James touched on his politics column this week is the idea, has politics realigned in the way people vote? So it's now a leave, remain axis, something Theresa May thought had happened in 2017. Or is it still left, right? Lib Dems and the Tories seem to be going for this leave, remain change. But Labour want to maintain some Brexit ambiguity. And one thing they've been doing and other polling has shown 
has been honest. If you look at the Midlands areas in the north, Labour leave voters, how tribal are they? Are they likely to move on an issue like Brexit, what the Tories are banking on, or does tribalism run deeper? Now, they found that they're actually quite encouraged by some of the results that Labour leave voters are still very sceptical, even of Boris Johnson. The Tory brand goes quite Mm. deep. But there is another group, polling suggests, which is unknown voters, so non-voters, who, because they don't vote so much, they don't really have that tribal Mm. allegiance. And if you look, I think there's two recent events where they had been very significant. Firstly, the EU referendum result in the first place. Lots of people say the shock leave result was in part down to high turnout in terms of non-voters. So you had some Labour MPs say at the point they thought that leave might win was when on the day they saw council estates with historically low turnout in their areas having lots of people going out to vote. And then I think again in the 2017 SNAP election, the non-voters were actually credited in part for Mm. giving... Jeremy Corbyn an extra boost and bringing him some surprise support so they're very hard to poll and I think there are figures in the Remain Alliance that I have spoken to who worried that Dominic Cummings of the Vote Leave campaign clearly managed to get them out Mm -hmm. in the referendum has some way of factoring this group in or has some way of of reaching out to them which means that that is why number 10 is being so bullish because they look at the various polls Mm -hmm. and electoral projections and think it's hard to see how the Tories get to this majority but are they missing something And, and I think there is that sense that it could be this group. Polly and Katie, thanks very much. Hello, I'm Olivia Potts and I'm Spectator Life's Vintage Chef and I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk. Next, have you heard of study drugs? They're a group of amphetamines that increase focus and mental stamina. The little blue pills are widespread on American campuses, with British students no strangers to them either. But, designed to treat ADHD and available on prescription only, what are the side effects of dozing up? Madeleine Kearns gets herself a prescription and writes about it in this week's issue. Earlier, Isabel Hardman spoke to Madeleine and Dr Barbara Sahakian, Professor of Clinical Neuropsychology at the University of Cambridge. So Maddie, what are study drugs and what do they do? Study drugs are amphetamines and they enhance, well, it it depends actually on what you're using them for, but they tend to make you focus better. And for me, as a writer, they upped my output and the frequency in which I was able to work. So you've been using them yourself? I have, yeah, for for the past 10 days. And how do you feel when you use them? Do you know, they were... And I'm conscious that I don't know who's listening to this, so I would like to sort of do a disclaimer. I don't try this at home, kind of thing. But, <laughs> but they were they were very pleasant, actually. They, uh, you know, I, I felt much more relaxed and able to concentrate. And uh, I think as I put in my piece, the things that weren't normally interesting, like the back of my cereal box, became very interesting. And uh, they certainly helped me produce more. Barbara, are these drugs legal? Not for if you don't have a prescription for them. So they're drugs like Adderall, amphetamine salts, uh, methylphenidate, Ritalin. And then I studied quite a lot with modafinil, which is a very popular 
study drug over here. But uh, from what we heard, this is very typical of the sort of thing that you get, that they you know, increase people's sustained attention. They're able to concentrate for longer periods of time. They seem to get through work faster. And they have actually improved work-related motivation. So you find a greater interest in the work that you're doing. And it's not a general euphoric effect, at least not with modafinil. It's, it's specific to the task at hand. My goodness, these sound great. Is there any downside? Well, obviously, with the classic stimulants like uh, the amphetamines, Adderall, Ritalin, I mean, those are drugs of, that could become addictive, so you have to be very careful there. And there are side effects, um, effects on the heart and so forth. Modafinil actually, so far, has not been shown to have any abuse potential, so it seems to be a slightly different drug. I, of course, use them in the context of trying to improve cognition in patients patients who either have neuropsychiatric disorders or brain injury, and they're very useful in that context. Would you recommend them in the wider studying context that Maddie has been using them in? I recommend exercise because it not only does it boost your cognition, but it actually increases brain cells. So you get increased neurogenesis in the brain in areas like the hippocampus, which is good for memory, and also it's good for your physical health. So I try to recommend with healthy people that they stick with things like exercise and make sure they get a good quality sleep and everything. But Maddie, you say that these drugs have been better for you than than any other method so far that you've you've found of getting pieces written? Well, yes, but but I think there are, there are some serious downsides, which is why I, I would stop using them, even though I comfortably met the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. I, I think, actually, it gets kind of philosophical quite quickly because for, you know, when you're selling a, a product, a business's first question might be, is it helpful, i.e., is it fulfilling my customer's needs? But when prescribing a drug, I think a doctor's first question ought to be, is this necessary, i.e. does the medical benefit in treating this patient's problem significantly outweigh the risk of harm? And the risk of harm is not insignificant, as I I document in my piece, but also I have in front of me the uh, medical guide that came with the prescription, which was not actually talked, uh, I wasn't talked through it by my doctor, and uh, side effects include sort of loss of appetite, weight loss, dry mouth, stomach upset, pain, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, headache, diarrhea. That's that's the kind of minor ones. And then there's more, actually, but more serious ones would be uh, signs of blood flow problems, fingers and toes, agitation, aggression, mood swings. And then very serious ones can be sort of fainting, severe headaches, seizures, all that kind of stuff, slurred speech. And, of course, the reason that they have to be listed here legally is that they've obviously happened to some people. And so I wonder whether... In many ways, are we are we actually are we selling people short by encouraging them to take drugs when they they could be sort of uh, just working on on perhaps things that are are maybe just character flaws? And uh, the, when I was researching this piece, it was really interesting because uh, one of the best indicators for whether or not a person will be diagnosed with ADHD in childhood is uh, is their age, is how young they are. So uh, younger kids are, I think, twice as likely to be uh, kids that are young for their class rather diagnosed with ADHD. I think that's that's a sign that we're perhaps medicating immaturity. And and the other big thing for me, the thing that, that makes me quite sad to think about is uh, whether we're also medicating eccentricity or even giftedness. So there's a, there's a really nice story uh, Ken Robinson tells on a TED talk about Gillian Lynn, who was that fantastically talented choreographer, who as a child in the 1930s, before people had a name for ADHD, was taken to see a specialist 
uh, because you couldn't sit still at school. And the doctor turned on the radio and played this music and, and she started dancing and, and, and he said, Mrs Lynn, your daughter's not sick, she's a dancer. And to be honest, I think children who are a bit different can grow up feeling really bad about themselves and being bullied and things because they're so different. And and I'm not sure responding with drugs as a, as a first point or a first solution is, is, a, is a good idea. Obviously, in, in rare circumstances, they can be helpful, but I think as a last resort. Let's put that back to Barbara then. Do you think there's a problem with not just overdiagnosis, but also overprescribing? There definitely has been picked up by the Care Quality Commission in this country that uh, there's been a doubling, over a doubling of uh, prescriptions for, you know, Ritalin. And they were quite concerned about it. And they put it down to partially more children being diagnosed. But also um, now there's an understanding that it could be a lifelong condition for many people so that there's more adult clinics now than there used to be. But the other thing they pointed out was they were concerned about it being misused and diverted to other uses. You know, I think as Maddie has been talking about where, you know, health people might be using it and getting off of somebody who has a prescription. I mean, the other thing I think that I like people to think about is, you know, what does that say about our society, that people are resorting to taking these drugs? I mean, the pressure on people to keep performing or to work long hours or to, you know, people doing shift work and so forth. In America, for instance, modafinil is not only regulated and registered for use in narcolepsy, excessive daytime sleep sleepiness as it is over here, but also for sleep disturbance due to shift work as it reduces accidents in shift workers. And I'm worried about, you know, will there be coercion on people to take it? Because maybe insurance companies will say, well, you know, we're not going to insure you if you're not on the drug because you have an increased risk of having accidents. So there's a lot of ethical and social problems associated with this practice, I think. We do already have legal and informal ways of trying to make ourselves focus. I mean, many, many of my columns have been written thanks to double espressos, for instance, and they don't always have the, the best side effects. I know a lot of people who've had kidney stones. The come down from them can make you quite grouchy so is it not just are these study drugs not just you know the new caffeine yeah I think uh, they're different I mean modafinil actually um, we we I did a, a study with the collaborator Lord Aradazi at Imperial College because he was concerned that his surgeons were taking lots of caffeine to stay awake and alert at night to do these operations and of course as you probably realize using caffeine you can get hand tremor and also palpitations and other sort of cardiovascular effects whereas when you take uh, modafinil say at a dose that improves cognition of say 200 milligrams you get almost no side effects in fact people don't even know sometimes whether they're on it or not and we found that it actually in his sleep deprived doctors when we looked at a a double blind placebo control study we found that the modafinil actually made the doctors uh, less impulsive and better able to solve problems and be cognitively flexible so I think that it could be a better drug but the problem is there's no long-term studies in healthy people so we don't know the long-term effects Another thing I'm worried about is besides people just swapping these pills around, you know, like if it's methylphenidate, Ritalin, getting it in the college library, is that some people are buying these drugs over the internet, which is a very unsafe way to get prescription-only medication because you don't really know what you're buying, and it's not made in a proper pharmaceutical company as we would get our drugs here if we were prescribed them. So surely it would be better for them to be offered as a regulated 
proper study drug that's not just prescribed to people with ADHD. But given the world we live in is not going to change very soon, there are always going to be people doing shift work, nighttime drivers, political journalists forced to stay up till 2am watching MPs singing in the House of Commons chamber, for instance. There is going to be a demand for something to keep you awake and focused. So why leave it to this sort of wild west of the internet and people, you know, using their friends to get drugs? I have, in my writing, put forward the idea that the government should get together with industry and do a long-term safety study and see whether it's actually effective in the long term because I've done a lot of acute studies, both with methylphenidate and also with modafinil in healthy people because I'm interested in how these drugs affect your cognitive processes. But the point is that we don't really know what the long-term effects are, and even if they're effective in the long term. So these studies really do need to be done. Maddie, what do you think? Yeah, I think, well, I would agree with Barbara that I think more research is is a good idea. But I'm always concerned when people make these types of arguments that what ends up happening is the substitution effect, i.e. having the markets just massively expanded. And I think when the market becomes massively expanded, you end up having more people abusing them and more people having adverse side effects. And also the sort of comparison with caffeine just strikes me as just whataboutery because we're, we're not discussing caffeine here. We're, we're discussing amphetamines, which are, which are very powerful, uh, alter your, your brain chemistry by tapping into the, the central nervous system. And as Barbara rightly says, you know, we don't know the, the long term effects of these. So you say you're not going to take these again, but come on, be honest, you're going to keep some in your desk drawer for the next time that you've got a crisis deadline and you just can't focus on a boring document that you've got to read first. Well, Isabel, let me just make something quite clear. This is a scientific and journalistic endeavour and uh, it's actually, it would be officially known as an unblinded N of one trial. And the way to really find out if the active substance makes me 25% better in half the amount of time, scientifically speaking, would be to randomly assign myself one month either to Adderall or a placebo and then unblind myself at the end. So in order to control for the placebo, I'd um, have like someone empty the capsules and fill them with paracetamol or something. And then I'd record adverse events over, the, over a period of time, like nausea, insomnia and stuff, as well as measuring my output. So, uh, and since I'm a writer, that would be quite easy to do. So I think it would be a completely scientific and very worthy experiment. But of course, because I so carefully crafted my pieces to end on a cliffhanger, I couldn't possibly tell you whether or not I'm going to do that. Well, we look forward to the next 30,000 words that you're going to send to us in the next (laughs) half an hour then. Thanks, Maddie. That was Madeline Kearns, Barbara Sahakian and Isabel Hardman. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. I'm the host of our weekly books podcast, where we have guests ranging from the authors of fiction to historians and critics and philosophers talking about everything and anything to do with the world of books. We've had in recent months, from the thriller writer Lee Child to the historian Peter Frankopan, we've had Deborah Lipstadt on anti-Semitism, Judith Carr on the Mog books, and Wendy Cope on her wonderful poetry. We hope there's something there for everyone, and if you think there might be, all you need to do is search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store or whichever your podcast provider is, and sign up to get a weekly dose of Spectator Books Conversation. And last, that Boris Johnson is a classicist is one of the most well-known facts about him. But, as Prime Minister, is he behaving much like his classical hero, the statesman Pericles? 
or has his short administration so far more resembled tyrants, of which there was no shortage in classical civilization either? The Spectator's ancient and modern columnist Peter Jones takes a stab at the question in this week's issue. And joining me to discuss, Boris's former editor and editor of the oldie, Harry Mount, with classicist and author Daisy Dunn. So Daisy, Boris Johnson's self-professed classical hero is Pericles. For those of us not classically educated, what sort of character was Pericles? Pericles was an immensely popular orator and statesman and general in Athens in the 5th century BC. And he presided over what's often called the Golden Age in Greece's history, and sort of the period between the Persian Wars and the Peloponnesian Wars. And he's probably best known for being a very sort of ardent, very enthusiastic, optimistic champion of democracy. And Harry, is Boris Johnson such a Pericles residing over such a golden age? I don't think anyone would call now a golden age at all, but Pericles is certainly Boris's hero. And a few years ago, at a great debate between him and Mary Beard, Boris supporting Greece, Mary supporting Rome, Boris lost. He sang the praises of Pericles and what he thought was particularly important in that golden age, which Daisy refers to is the power of democracy, and he explains that all other civilizations were worshipping a tyrant or a brutal king. Having quite watered down democracy meant that you could turn your attention not to a brutal tyrant, but to, say, building the Parthenon, which was built under Pericles' reign, to all that extraordinary tragedy, comedy, all the rest of it. So I think Boris's model is Pericles because he's a, a leader in a democratic system but in a very, very watered-down democracy, only a tiny amount of people could actually vote in 5th century Athens. So when people say Boris is being anti-democratic now, which he might well be, he's actually in line to a certain extent with his hero, Pericles. Daisy, Peter Jones writes in this week's magazine that Boris last week referred to Augustus, not his hero, Pericles, when talking about his governance so far. I think some of his critics might think he is more of a classical tyrant like Nero as well, considering the way he expelled his 21 Tory rebels. What do you think? I think the Nero comparison might, I don't think he'd like that one very much. Um, Nero being sort of one of the very, very bad emperors of Rome. I think the Augustus comparison, I can see why he would, would quite like to be like Augustus. I mean, Augustus presided over one of the biggest changes in Rome's history, as uh, sort of the change from republic to empire. And uh, he succeeded, succeeded in becoming the first emperor, which was really quite a coup if you think that for hundreds of years, Romans had had really a great fear and loathing of monarchy and dictatorship. So to be accepted uh, as the sole ruler was sort of an achievement kind of on a par with persuading Remainers to accept that Brexit was an excellent idea, I think. It's sort of quite a cue. But I think sort of in terms of character, Augustus is quite dry. I think with Nero, someone like that, he's a lot more, sort of one of his strengths, that he's very, very artistic and he really favoured the arts and sort of was a great patron of the arts. So perhaps on that front, uh, that comparison would be possible. Harry, you wrote a biography of Boris Johnson. Knowing him as you do, do you think that the classics actually informs his decisions or is it just something that hangs around his lips? It completely informs his 
mind. He often does things on the wing. Uh, I've often seen him walk into speeches, literally writing a speech on the back of an envelope. But the, the last time, probably, he, he was completely obsessed with something. He once said the, one, the last time he worked really hard was at the age of 15, when he was studying classics at Eton. And he does absolutely adore Greek and Latin. Last time I saw him was last summer on Exmoor. And he started talking to me in Latin. He thinks, because I've written a frivolous book about Latin, that I know it much better than I do. <laughs> so he started saying, O temporaro mores, all the rest of it. And I just went, yes. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but it, it does completely inform his view of the world. So I don't think he would be particularly looking towards Pericles or Augustus and saying, I shall do X. But he completely uh, is absorbed in the classical world. I once asked him when I wrote this book about him, Boris, do you use any of those famous Ciceronian classical devices in your speeches? And he went, oh, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's one I use always. Uh, I said, God, a gog. I said, what is it? And he said, oh, it's so crucial. It's called imbecilio. And that's a, a perfect example of his sort of humor. <laughs> but at the same time, he, he, he would know all those classical devices. And you quite often look beneath his speeches and sure. he does use them. Daisy, I mean, the classics have this reputation as being for the elites. Do you think it's actually could be actually damaging for a politician like Boris Johnson to have these classical references as it reveals something about their social class, which opponents can use as ammo? You wouldn't catch John McDonnell, for example, citing Augustus. No, you wouldn't. Yeah, I think you have a point. I think it's it's sad, um, but it's true that sort of classical education is still very much associated with certain schools. And I think, you know, if you're going to throw in a load of Latin into your speeches, then you're sort of risking alienating a significant proportion of the population. Having said that, I mean, I think it adds, you know, a certain amount of colour. I think it's quite fun to make any kind of classical comparison. And the fact that we're actually talking about, you know, Boris and Augustus and Pericles today, I mean, it's it's something that people want to talk about and sort of delve into and sort of analyse a bit more. So I think it adds sort of interesting depth. On On that point, I agree with... Daisy and I noticed I've edited Boris's copy for five years at the Telegraph and he completely calibrates the level at which he makes classical references so he won't say things whole sentences that are obscure so that he won't uh, uh, so he won't um, uh, misunderstand him what he does is he very carefully drops in wonderful words which you may or may not have heard of and even though I studied classics I'd never heard of the word he always uses of Pericles which is dolicocephalic, which means long forehead. It's one of the reasons why Pericles is always in that helmet, because he had a long forehead. And and that's a perfect example of Boris using a word, which is a fantastic word, talking up to people. So when I was editing that, I didn't cut it out because I enjoyed going and looking it up. And I knew the rest of the sentence didn't matter if he didn't know what it meant. And so he's not one of those people who, apart from when he's meeting you privately, tries to bamboozle you with classics he drops I agree. in I think, very I mean, very Reeves cleverly does it. yeah sorry Harry. as i say i mean i think if you look at someone who uses sort of latin and these sort of references in a, a lot more sort of less easy to sort of understand way it's Rees mogg on that one do you think Rees mogg is mo- much more of a charlatan whereas boris johnson actually does know his stuff i mean Rees mogg's book on the victorians was very badly reviewed for its lack of actual Substance. Well, that, that was fascinating. And I know Jacob a bit, and I was surprised. I haven't read the books, to be fair, but ha- what very bad reviews it got. And to give him his due, Jacob, is on the radio the other day, and somebody said, you've had mixed reviews for your book. And he said, that's very kind. As far as I saw, they weren't mixed <laughs> at all. And Boris has dashed off quite a few books. He, he once said to a friend of mine, he was finding it very, very hard. He had to write 
a novel within, I think it was eight weeks. So he he does dash them off, but he he has he has whatever you think of him, and I can see why people hate him. But um, he has got what he uh, an expression he often uses himself of other people a planet uh, sized brain. So even when he's dashing things off, he didn't get the same bad reviews that Jacob got. And finally, a question to you both. In these turbulent times of modern politics, we don't really know what's going to happen next. So do you think the classics hold any lessons for the moderns? I think I mean, one of the lessons uh, which comes out of, so if you look at both Pericles and Augustus to an extent too, is uh, sort of beware of hubris. I mean, Pericles is sort of admirable in so many ways, but one thing we haven't sort of touched upon is the fact that he actually made a lot of catastrophic errors. He sort of led Athens into this war, which they were never going to win, and his oratory is full of optimism about how they're going to sort of succeed in this war, but then uh, his policy was to sort of hem them all in behind the walls of Athens um, because Athens' strength was really by sea rather than by land and you want to avoid a land battle but as a result of that the plague uh, broke out in Athens and so many more people ended up dying and then Greece ended up losing that war so I think it's a beware of overreach this happens a time and time and again through Greek history and Roman history as well don't be too confident about what lies ahead I agree and as Daisy knows after hubris comes nemesis and Boris knows that well and it, it completely informs his character. He's always been fantastically ambitious, famously age five. When asked what he wanted to be, he said world king. But at the same time as his old deputy at the Spectator, Stuart Reed, said he realises the vanity or the vanitas of all human ambition. That's why he often mocks himself. So he must win at all costs, but he knows through his classical studies that that all human endeavour is, is ultimately doomed. On that joyful note, we'll end it there. Thanks, Daisy. Thanks, Harry. And that's all for this week. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, why not check out a live recording of Sam Leith's Spectator Books podcast. He'll be interviewing Robert Harris, the best-selling author of Fatherland, Enigma and Pompeii, live in Westminster on the 23rd of October. This event is subscriber only, and to get tickets, just visit spectator.co.uk forward slash Harris. If you aren't a subscriber, what are you waiting for? Get a subscription on spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher and get a free £20 Amazon voucher. Do also pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in this episode, as well as more from George Osborne, Tibor Fisher and Conrad Black. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. (laughs) 